Welcome to the 10th annual Ronald Reagan Intelligence Lecture of the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs and 18 uh, certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. To support our work, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. We will be hearing from Dr. John Lanchowski, who will discuss strategic deception and active measures. Dr. Lanchowski is founder, president emeritus, and chancellor of the Institute of World Politics. From 1981 to 1983, Dr. Lanchowski served in the State Department in the Bureau of European Affairs as, and as special advisor to Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Lawrence Eagleburger. From 83 to 87, he was Director of European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. In that capacity, he was Principal Soviet Affairs Advisor to President Reagan. He has been associated with several academic and research institutions in the Washington area, including Georgetown University, University of Maryland, the American Enterprise Institute, and the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is the author of Soviet Perceptions of U.S. Foreign Policy, The Sources of Soviet Perestroika, Cultural Diplomacy, a Multifaceted Strategic Asset of Soviet Power, Full Spectrum Diplomacy and Grand Strategy, and numerous other writings. Dr. Lanchowski earned his BA at the University of California, Berkeley, and received his MA and PhD from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Um, welcome, Dr. Lanchowski. Thank you very much, Mrs. Bridges. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. And uh, I would like to welcome our audience. And uh, it's a great privilege to be able to, to give this talk. Uh, I'm following in the footsteps of a lot of very distinguished people who have given this annual Reagan intelligence lecture. And, um, and I owe a lot of what I know about intelligence to many of my predecessors, not the least of whom is Professor Emeritus from IWP, Ken de Graffenried, who was the architect of our intelligence master's program, the first one of its kind in the United States. I'd like to begin by saying that we at IWP teach our graduate students the importance of looking at the world the way it really is, as opposed to the way they wish it to be or the way others would like us to perceive them. Uh, as Professor de Graffenried has said, uh, other countries are not like bugs on a slide who are standing there in their nakedness uh, to be looked at under the, under the lens of a, a microscope. They uh, want us to see them uh, the way they want to be seen. And so they wear clothes, they wear makeup, uh, they color their hair, they wear perfume, and they do all sorts of things to be other than the way they are naked. And so uh, there are, the problem here of seeing foreign reality correctly is one of the biggest problems in foreign policy. And one of my motivations in helping to start the Institute was that I found that none of the professional schools of international affairs were teaching the subjects of propaganda, disinformation, deception 
and other impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly. And this was, and I ran, as a result of my experience in government, I ran into many examples of where the neglect of this study uh, was manifest and was harmful to the national interests of the United States. <clears throat> so let me just review a couple of the impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly. One of them is mirror imaging, where you look at other, at, at other countries and other cultures as if they are just like us. And, and you assume that whatever we think is reasonable or unreasonable behavior, they think the same thing. Uh, but that isn't necessarily so. We think it's crazy to fight and win a nuclear war, that it's impossible to do that. Whereas uh, a very strong case can be made that the Soviet Union and perhaps even the Russians today uh, believe that it is possible to fight and win a nuclear war. The Russians have long said that the, the United States, that we Americans are sentimental about nuclear weapons, uh, that, uh, that we actually killed more people through conventional firebombing of Tokyo than we killed at Hiro, either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And in those latter cases, we simply did it more efficiently. And so what's the difference, they say? Uh, and indeed, they train with the use of nuclear weapons uh, in their military training. It's part of their doctrine. And they have set up uh, a whole uh, deep underground system uh, for the protection of their uh, elites, as well as lots of people. Uh, one of the big problems we faced in, in, uh, during the Cold War was our, the problem of wishful thinking and willful blindness, which is another one of those impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly. And an example of this was when we simply would not believe uh, human sources, whether they were defectors or emigres, who were describing the deep underground system that they had developed in, in the Soviet Union. They described special elevators that would go down to meet up with a special subway system in Moscow that was completely parallel to the famous Moscow subway system. And these, the, the, these subway cars would spirit people out to special airports that would then take the leadership and others to uh, underground bunkers that were uh, you know, very substantial. Now, you know, we did not, our, our intelligence community did not want to admit to the possibility that this was happening. They were thinking that these emigres and others were a bunch of disgruntled people who were trying to make themselves look more important by, uh, by exaggerating uh, the, the, these kinds of reports. But eventually, when we got the technical intelligence about the existence of this underground program, we began to believe it, but it was, we were in a state of complete denial about this. I should simply, I don't know how many of you have heard about Yamantau Mountain, but Yamantau Mountain, one would think would be a newsworthy thing. I remembered in, in the mid late nineties reading an intelligence leak in the papers about it. What is it? It's a, a, a warren of bunkers in the Ural Mountains that the, that the Russians were still making several years after the collapse of the Soviet system. This, the size of this, of, of this complex was basically 
and it is the size of the entire Washington DC metropolitan area inside the Beltway. You're talking about the District of Columbia, Alexandria, Arlington, uh, Bethesda, Chevy Chase, uh, College Park, Riverdale, Hyattsville, Suitland, etc. cetera. Uh, a couple of million people live in this territory. And in Yamantau Mountain, you can not only uh, hide a lot of, protect a lot of people, but have stores of water, of food, and, and industry as well. Well, so this is just one kind of an example of where wishful thinking will, and willful blindness uh, have impeded our ability to, to, to see reality correctly. Uh, other impediments, there is ideology and its utopian strains. Uh, and, and there are many different kinds of this ideology. Liberal internationalism has its version. Uh, Neoconservative Wilsonianism has its version. Uh, libertarian isolationism has its version, and so do the realists themselves, amazingly enough. Um, there is the problem of corruption. There are lots of people who will not tell the truth about uh, uh, foreign realities if they have been sufficiently corrupted. There are enormous numbers of people today, uh, former senior officials, former cabinet members, scholars, think tank experts, who uh, have been either directly or indirectly from time to time, or even consistently been on the, the, the Chinese payroll. Uh, they, uh, senior officials, including flag officers, go and 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 after their their government service and work in consulting firms that open the doors to people in in uh, uh, to for for their corporate uh, uh, clients uh, in 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 Beijing, and and ultimately the money that they're earning comes from Beijing. And notice that these people never have anything to say about any threat from communist China. Uh, corruption. Um, there is a whole slew of, of, uh, of, of blue chip think tanks in here in Washington, D.C. that have taken money from and have uh, done joint projects with front organizations of Chinese intelligence, just to give you an example. So then there's the problem of groupthink, a conventional wisdom that is extremely difficult to overcome if you're working in a government agency that suffers from it a think tank or the academic world. And then, of course, there is um, propaganda, disinformation, and strategic deception. And I'm going to discuss in more detail today the last of these, the, the, the disinformation and strategic deception, as practiced by the Soviets, who established a tradition that is alive and well today both in Russia, as well as we can see very large elements of this same strategy coming out of communist China. These perceptions management efforts are particularly effective when they exploit the other impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly, as I outlined at the beginning of this. So I'd like to begin here with, by relating a little history of my experience in the Reagan administration. I came into the Reagan State Department in 1981, having finished a couple of years of service on, a, on a, the staff of Congressman Jim Corder of New Jersey, where I had done a thorough study of US and Soviet public diplomacy efforts. 
and, and, the, and in the case of the Soviets, this involved an examination of their propaganda and influence operations. Um, when I arrived at state, US policy was heavily devoted at the time to responding to our NATO allies request that we restore some of the missing rungs on the ladder of military escalation options in the European theater. Specifically, our intermediate range nuclear delivery systems were obsolete and were strategic and strategically inferior to Soviet medium range missiles. Our allies simply did not believe that if the Soviets perpetrated a nuclear attack on a European target, that we would then launch our ICBMs from the Dakotas. Our nuclear umbrella simply was not credible to them. Because if we launched for our ICBM, our strategic missiles from, from, from uh, the continental US or from our submarines, then we would be inviting a retaliation of their strategic missiles against our, uh, against our homeland. And so this nuclear umbrella simply was not credible at the theater level. So to fill the huge gap, we developed the Pershing II intermediate range nuclear missiles, ballistic missiles, as well as air launched and ground launched cruise missiles that would be deployed in Europe and now, having done that, we were to go about deploying them. The problem was that Moscow launched a $100 million propaganda and active measures campaign that succeeded in persuading the publics and the parliaments of many European countries that these deployments were an American initiative to nuclearize the European continent and make it a radioactive battlefield. When the truth was that we were not, this was not an American initiative, we were responding to the requests of our allies. So we had, if we were going to end up deploying these, these forces, which we had to do, or else there was a risk that countries would, would pry themselves away from NATO and make their own independent peace arrangements with the Soviet Union, we had to launch a counter propaganda effort to tell those publics the truth. <clears throat> in the midst of this, it became apparent that we had not been collecting intelligence on a regular basis about Soviet propaganda and active measures, and we hadn't been doing it for years. The decade of the 1970s, particularly, which was characterized by the policy of detente, had anesthetized us to such truly Cold War activities. So what we had to do was revise the national intelligence topics to start collecting and analyzing these activities. <clears throat> the problem was that knowledge of active measures was particularly weak throughout our government. The term itself was largely unknown. It is a KGB term of art, activnia meropriatia, that refers to disinformation, forgeries, and covert influence operations. So some definitions would also include provocation, distraction, propaganda of the deed, and other activities, including assassinations, all designed to elicit a policy response that would be favorable to the Kremlin. So detecting and countering active measures 
is fundamentally a counterintelligence task. It should be noted that most people equate counterintelligence with counterespionage, but the latter is only part of counterintelligence. Other parts of that cerebral and most difficult art of statecraft <clears throat> include offensive operations like double agent operations and penetrations of foreign intelligence services, countering other activities that foreign intelligence services do against us, like active measures, is yet another counterintelligence function. Unfortunately, we had been neglecting this for years. Uh, our US government agencies were not educating and training its person, their personnel about these matters. And this was one of the major impeti for me wanting to start IWP precisely because most people in the counterintelligence business had never studied it before going into it. And therefore there was colossal ignorance about the operational traditions of, of, some, of, you know, of some counterintelligence operations, such as, for example, the famous trust case of the 1920s. Uh, for those of you who don't know about it, um, the trust was a false opposition that was created by the Cheka, the, the original name for the KGB. And, uh, and, and it had, they approached, the people in, in this false opposition approached the emigre opposition, the whites who had lost the civil war against the reds and who were ensconced in places like Germany, trying to do counter-revolution. And uh, they said, well, why don't you, uh, you know, uh, you know, we've, we've, we're coming to you because Lenin has destroyed our country, uh, he's wrecked our economy, uh, it is a complete disaster, and some of us have decided, even though we work in the Bolshevik government, to, uh, to, to dissent from all of this. We have to, we have to get rid of this government. And, 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 but we can understand that you wouldn't trust us. So, um, we're going to leak to you classified information, some classified documents, and you can sell it to the Western intelligence services. They will regard it as authentic. They will pay you really good money for it, and you can use that money to, uh, to conduct anti-Bolshevik operations from your base here in Europe. <clears throat> so they started doing this. The leaks started. The, the, the sale of the documents happened to... Uh, to, you know, was, was, was being done. The Western intelligence agencies were paying for them. Uh, there were infiltrations of saboteurs. There were exfiltrations of people at risk. There were assassinations of Soviet government officials. There were the, there were the bombings of, of Soviet police stations. It was an extraordinary set of uh, activities that went on for seven years until finally somebody from the Bolshevik government um, defected to Finland and told the Finns that all of this was a setup. All of these actions were done by a false opposition, uh, and, and this was all a deception. Uh, the, the Finnish intelligence couldn't believe it. They consulted with other intelligence services, and they all came to the conclusion that no single individual would know about all of this stuff unless indeed it was centrally orchestrated. And so, Six months later, this guy redefects to the Soviet Union, having revealed the whole thing. It was a deliberate revelation. 
by the Bolsheviks themselves. Why? Because it was the coup de grace, the final blow. And so now nobody in the external opposition could trust anybody else. You're working there in your cubicle in Germany, and you look over to the guy at the next cubicle, and you don't know, is he working for them or is he working for us? Everybody's looking over their shoulder. Nobody can trust anybody else. And the result was that the, the, the Cheka OGPU ended up destroying the and attracting genuine oppositionists within the Soviet Union. They, uh, and they attracted them. They destroyed the internal opposition. They penetrated and, and, and destroyed effectively the external opposition. They deceived 11 Western intelligence services for seven years and got the West to pay the bill for the entire thing. This is the most spectacular, offensive, political, strategic counterintelligence operation in modern history. And yet during the Cold War, scratch your favorite Soviet expert and chances, there's a 95% chance that he or she would not know this story. And, and the only people in the intelligence community who knew this story ended up becoming professors at IWP. And so we've been teaching this. And this, by the way, is an operational tradition that if one had studied this kind of thing, one would know that this is what Gorbachev did in penetrating the people's fronts in the Union Republics, as well as the, 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 the similar organizations in the East Central European countries in 1989, including the Solidarity Movement in Poland. It didn't work, but they gave it a try. Uh, Castro did this kind of thing and one of the most militant anti-Castro organizations doing paramilitary training and so on and so forth in South Florida is a complete Castro creation attracting genuine militant oppositionists. <clears throat> this, is, this, is a, this is an offensive counterintelligence operation that our counterintelligence simply didn't know about. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we had been neglecting this. So the tide turned when at the State Department when one of our most senior case officers from the Directorate of Operations at CIA brought Stanislav Levchenko to the State Department to teach the relevant officers there the basics of counterintelligence. Stan was one of the USSR's top experts on East Asia and had been recruited by the KGB. He had served as the chief of Soviet active measures operations in Tokyo for several years. During that time, he had recruited, uh, I'm not sure, somewhere about 10 or a dozen uh, Japanese journalists to serve as, as, as Soviet agents of influence. He recruited the editor-in-chief of the largest conservative newspaper in Japan and the right-hand man to the publisher of the largest newspaper in Japan. I think I've got those facts right. Uh, it could be the other way around. I, he also recruited several members of the, uh, of the Japanese diet, their parliament. He did a seminar at the State Department for us that was a huge eye-opener for almost everyone in the room who simply couldn't believe that such things were being done, much less in the United States. So it happens that the Director of Central Intelligence, Bill Casey, took the lead on this issue. 
Early on in his tenure at CIA, Casey delivered a major public address on Soviet active measures in order to alert our public and other people in the government about it. Around that time, the Soviet Active Measures Working Group was, was created. It was a, an interagency group based at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Its members included a couple of us from state, representatives from the special advisory staff in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, including General Walter Yaiko, who eventually became one of our professors. Uh, there were FBI officials. There were US information agency officials, particularly Herb Romerstein, who also joined our faculty at IWP and was one of the greatest experts in the world on, on uh, Soviet active measures. There were representatives from the CIA and representatives from the NSC, including our future professor, whom I've mentioned, Ken de Graffenried, and later myself when I joined the NSC. The group was charged with analyzing intelligence on active measures, selectively declassifying it, and then exposing it publicly. As a result of the new intelligence tasking, the intelligence community and our diplomats abroad collected huge amounts of intelligence on Soviet active measures, and they did it with aplomb. The next step in the process was to analyze it. It was funny, though, that the Soviet department in the Directorate of Intelligence at CIA appeared resistant to doing this job. I don't know all the facts of the case. Um, I've been told certain things, but I hesitate to go on the public record with everything about what that I've heard. But Casey felt compelled to establish a new bureau, the so-called Office of Global Issues, to do the analysis, and it did an outstanding job. The, the, the Active Measures Working Group then took that analysis from there. We produced a series of brief publications on each of the Soviet front organizations that are a huge part of Soviet active measures and, uh, and many of the active measures themes. And for example, there were fronts that the Soviets ran, the atheistic Soviet Union ran three Christian front organizations. Uh, they had managed to, to, to transform the Russian Orthodox Church into an instrument of Soviet international peace propaganda. And I remember asking Stan Levchenko, which was the KGB's single most effective and powerful agent of influence? And without blinking an eye, he said, Metropolitan Filaret of Minsk, um, a, a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church. There were other, of course, major fronts. The most famous of them is the World Peace Conference. There was the World Federation of Trade Unions, the World Federation of Democratic Youth, and others. And I should just mention, and uh, Katie, do you think you could put the first chart up? Uh, this was one of the one of the produ productions that we made of uh, of the Soviet international fronts. You will see here at the on the top row is uh, are the you can't read this but I wanted to give you a sense of the sort of the physical size of all of this. On the top row horizontally are the different Moscow control groups. Then there are about seven major uh, organizations in the next horizontal row of the, um, of the Soviet affiliates. 
And then underneath that are 10 international front organizations, such as the ones that I mentioned, the World Federation of Trade Unions, the World Federation of Democratic Youth, et cetera, et cetera. And each one of those has 200 affiliates, uh, 150 affiliates, um, you know, in, in other words, um, scores and scores of affiliates. Just that row alone may have a good thousand affiliates worldwide of those of those organizations themselves. Then you've got regional organizations in different parts of the world. Then the next row um, includes fronts of fronts, uh, and 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 then there are you know all sorts of other um, uh, you know related organizations. We're talking about really. Uh, you know, maybe a couple of thousand of these kinds of organizations. I think that today, uh, the, uh, the analog of this today is that China has something like 600 similar organizations operating in the United States, and nobody knows particularly much about them at all. Anyway, um, thank you, Katie. This is a very rare document. We have, uh, we have an original of it uh, that's hanging on the wall outside of one of our classrooms at IWP. Um, massive uh, worldwide operation. So um, this, of course, this chart does not include the, the, all of the communist parties around the world that were under the direction of the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and its international department and its transmission belts, such as the World Marxist Review, whose original, uh, which, which was what it was called in the United States, but it was the American version of, of, of a, a journal called Problems of Peace of, and Socialism, published in Czechoslovakia, that were the transmission belts of instructions for the different communist parties. So then, um, we started producing, and the, the, the Active Measures Group started producing annual reports. And they outlined all sorts of things. And maybe, Katie, you could put the, the covers of, uh, of these up so that people can see them. Here's one of them. I think that you can find these if you look hard enough on the IWP website. Uh, they're, not, they're not easy to find, but this was from 1986. Um, and this one is from 1987. The cartoon on this one, you may want to take a look at it. Uh, it, is, uh, it has got a test tube there. And inside that test tube uh, are a bunch of little swastikas, uh, which represent the AIDS virus. And on the right, you have a, a military officer, probably from uh, working from Fort Detrick in Maryland, and the you know chemical biological weapons uh, uh, research that's done there for defense against those things, and he has allegedly been the one to develop the AIDS virus, and he's giving it to uh, you know our physicians so that we can spread the AIDS virus around the world in populations that uh, that we want to to harm. Uh, and, and one of the great active measures campaigns was precisely uh, the, the, the AIDS uh, disinformation campaign. Um, so these reports outline all sorts of things. 
Soviet efforts to influence the peace movement in the United States, the nuclear freeze movement, uh, efforts to control the international women's movement, uh, influence over religious organizations such as the notorious uh, Christian Peace Conference, uh, influence over our presidential elections. I was kind of tickled to see that uh, um, a memo that I wrote to um, the national deputy national security advisor, Admiral Poindexter, uh, in 1984 uh, has still been circulating around Washington um, in light of everybody's concern about Russian influence over our own elections. And it was about a three or four page memo. It's been declassified and uh, Seth Jones at CIS, CSIS ended up writing an article for that think tank, uh, which, which cited my, uh, my, my memo on that very subject. Um, there were, uh, we, these reports analyze influence, Soviet influence in the United Nations, Soviet influence over the media, uh, the uh, disinformation about uh, chemical and biological warfare, not only AIDS, but the development of a so-called ethnic weapon that uh, is, it was developed by the United States allegedly that would only kill black people. And another one would jointly de developed with Israel that would only kill Arabs, uh, remarkable. Anyway, then uh, you, can, you can take that off now, Katie. Um, the, uh, then we also worked on forgeries and, and, and uh, there were, the, the Soviets were masters at developing forgeries. And, uh, and these, you know, how do they work? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a forgery from uh, a general in the Pentagon that was sent to uh, a letter from, from this general to the US ambassador in Jakarta in, in Indonesia. And uh, this, uh, this fake letter was leaked to the Indonesian press, and the Indonesian press, you know, and, and, and it exposed the fact that the United States was plotting to get militarily involved in intervening in Indonesian affairs with our military. And so the, the president of Indonesia at the time, I can't remember whether it was Sukarno or Suharto, but one of them, uh, ended up uh, going on a two-week anti-American rampage having read this forged letter. And our, our diplomats in Jakarta tried to get through to him. He wouldn't listen to anything. And finally, after two weeks of daily attacks against the United States, uh, we finally got through to him and proved to him beyond a forensic doubt that, uh, that, that this was a forgery. And, and of course, as the old Labor Secretary Ray Donovan once said, where do I go now to get my reputation back? Uh, where does the United States go to get its reputation back amongst the Indonesian people after these lies have been promulgated? There's no place to go. And so this is why it's so important to have good public diplomacy all the time and develop relationships of trust with foreign people not just with governments, in order to ensure that that uh, uh, you know people will be less likely to believe this stuff. 
So the State Department was the one that published most of these, these reports. We published a lot of smaller foreign affairs notes, as they were called, about individual cases. Uh, but the FBI published a particularly good one in 1987 uh, that it made public. All of these were made public, and our interagency group sent out truth squads around the country, talked to the media, and then to foreign countries and to foreign governments and foreign media in order to alert them about all of this stuff. It was extremely successful. And this interagency group was deemed as one of the most successful interagency groups of any kind, such that the National Defense University wrote a whole study about this as a model group of how an interagency group should work. So let me go on to a, a couple of other issues here. One is the whole question of, of, of let's say, of, of, of deception, which can be divided into two categories, tactical and strategic. Tactical deception is obvious to anybody who has been involved in military affairs. <clears throat> and, you know, people in the intelligence community recognize a lot of tactical deception as well. But when we were engaging in big debates about the verifiability of many of the arms control agreements, agreements that we were signing with Moscow, there was huge skepticism in the uh, intelligence community that they uh, were engaging in the camouflage of their, uh, of their nuclear uh, arms facilities. Um, the Soviets called it Maskirovka, Maskirovka. Uh, and so um, there was a big debate about this. And what ended up happening was that some of those uh, rather senior people in, in, the, uh, in the intelligence community uh, were invited to a meeting with President Reagan. I'm not sure whether it was the Oval Office or the Situation Room. And Ken de Graffenreid, uh, uh, who you know, was in charge at that time uh, for eight years of the Intelligence Directorate in the National Security Council, came in to say, look, uh, the Soviets aren't the only ones who engage in tactical deception in Muskerovka. The United States does it too. And Katie, maybe you can show the first uh, of our photographs here. <clears throat> um, and during World War II, um, we needed to uh, camouflage some of our important uh, military industrial facilities. This is a photo of the Lockheed aircraft manufacturing plant in Burbank, California. You will see off to the upper right, uh, but coming up to it, uh, a, a whole railroad line. There are roads coming to it. And of course, to the bottom left, you will see a runway where the aircraft manufactured there can take off and start flying away. Well, uh, we were afraid that the Japanese could wipe this thing out. And we had to be very careful. Japanese were sinking our ships, uh, merchant ships and things in the Pacific right off the California coast. Uh, there were Nazi U-boats. I even knew the widow of a, of a man in San Francisco who was picked up on the ocean beach in San Francisco city itself by a Nazi U-boat during World War II. Um, and he disappeared forever. She never saw him again. 
Anyway, um, Katie, maybe you can show the next slide, which is uh, this here. This is a, uh, a rural sort of exurban scene of houses with trees and fields and gardens and things like that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that picture that you're looking at there is the Lock Lockheed aircraft manufacturing plant. Uh, you cannot, you know, if you are a Japanese pilot flying over that at 350 miles an hour, uh, you would not see the factory. You would see a scene like this. Uh, it's amazing. This is American Maskerovka. Maybe you can show the next scene of how it was done. There, at the plant, are a whole crowd of Lockheed people, and right above them are the nets which were used uh, in order to camouflage uh, all of that territory. And, 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 and obviously it extended over the runway, over the railroad tracks and so on and so forth. So this is American Maskirovka. And I can only assure you that the Soviets are very good at doing this stuff. And so are their clients like Saddam Hussein, who was extreme, so good at camouflaging his Scud missile batteries that I don't think we found any of them during the, uh, the, the first Iraq, the first Gulf War in, in 1991. Anyway, thank you for that, Katie. Um, that, that is great. Now that's tactical deception, but what is strategic deception? Well, strategic deception is where you deceive your adversary about what it, your strategic intentions and purposes are. And you've got to deceive them, therefore, about what your DNA is. I tell my students that there are two different types of animals in the forest. There are carnivores and there are herbivores. And the carnivores eat the herbivores. But they also, like many of them, learn how to disguise themselves to persuade the herbivores that they are herbivores too. And that is strategic deception. So I remember when I was in the NSC, I was getting intelligence cables, raw intelligence that had classic Soviet strategic deception themes in them. And I ended up, uh, I was outraged because there was no warning that this was what was in those cables. Somebody in our intelligence community was making the decision to, to send these cables with strategic deception themes, classic themes, to senior executives in the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House. I complained to Ken DeGraffenried and company in, the, in our intelligence directorate. He talked with some of our people, our friends, and the Senate Intelligence Committee staff, talked with Casey, and the result was that CIA organized a major conference on the subject of deception. At this conference, which I attended and delivered a paper, uh, there were two schools of thought. There were those who thought we could be deceived and those who thought we couldn't be deceived. Who was who? Well, the consumers of intelligence, like myself, thought we could be deceived. The, the collectors and, 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 uh, and analysts of intelligence thought, well, we in, our, in what we do are so good at what we do that we can't be deceived. And the signals intelligence people thought that about themselves. 
the photo intelligence people thought them about that about themselves, and other uh, ints thought that about themselves. And they said, oh, maybe the other guys down the hall could be deceived, but, 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 but not, not us. Well, it turns out the whole Buya base was exposed at this conference. And, uh, and, and CIA did a brilliant and honest job of laying this out. And the result was the creation of a national intelligence officer for deception. The problem is that deception has not been a regular professional discipline within our intelligence community. And a recent study by one of the CIA's greatest experts on this was recently published, as I understand it, in Studies in Intelligence by the, in the Journal of the CIA, that uh, the only time we pay serious attention to it is when we happen to have a director of central intelligence who is personally interested in this. So there are many themes, and I'll just go very quickly through some of the Soviet themes that exploited our mirror imaging, our wishful thinking, our psychological denial, our groupthink, and our desire to be deceived. The main strategic deception theme was the USSR is not communist anymore. And if, if we can believe that, then necessarily, they, by definition, they no longer have unlimited global objectives. The, 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 a, a corollary to this was to confuse us of, as to what the source of tensions was between East and West. They wanted us to believe it was the arms race, when in fact, it was the DNA of the Soviet political system. The, the, the corollaries to, to this general theme was the idea communist ideology is dead, in spite of the fact that it could be operational. The fact of the matter was that the ideology could be operational in the Soviet system, even if not everybody believed in it, because it had to be there for purposes of legitimacy and for internal security. The ideology set the standard against which deviationism was measured. Another classic theme, there are hawks and doves in the Kremlin. The hawks are a bunch of Stalinist ideologues. The doves are a bunch of pragmatic people who understand America better and to, under, to know us is to love us. And, and, and they play the good cop, bad cop routine in their arms control negotiations. There were other themes, the individual and not the party is what really counts in the Soviet Union, which got us focusing heavily on individual personalities and their policy predilections, notwithstanding the fact that somebody like Nikita Khrushchev could oppose Malenkov with one position. And then once he deposed Malenkov in the, in the Stalin succession, he adopted Malenkov's very position. So which was it, Nikita? <laughs> Another variant, the USSR has changed. Um, the Soviet military doctrine was defensive. Uh, and, and part of all of this is to use semantics. For example, the expression peace uh, really is a synonym for communism. Freedom is a synonym for communism. Security is a synonym for communism. And what's peaceful coexistence? Peaceful coexistence to us means, well, you know, we may hate each other, but we'll live and let live. To the Soviets, look at a Soviet political lexicon. It means a form of struggle against capitalism where all forms of struggle are permissible except all out war. Anyway, 
I'm, I've used up too much time here, but I thought that I would touch on these things. Um, the Chinese, I should just mention, have been masters uh, for years now in exploiting our psychological denial, uh, our wishful thinking, uh, our mirror imaging. And we have been, you know, we have built them into a, a, a superpower, and now we're going to have to deal with it having deceived ourselves about their true DNA for now decades. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. And I just would like to say if anybody wants to, uh, to learn more about these very interesting subjects, you should sign up and study with us at IWP. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lenchovsky. Um, if anyone has a question, please feel free to type it into the box. Or if you're with us on Facebook, um, please feel welcome to comment. Um, we do have one question um, from Chris Orr. Um, Chris, thank you for your support and for your service to our country. Um, the question is, um, seeing as how famous Soviet dissident Alexander Sol Solzhenitsyn was a victim of the KGB's active measures, including a failed assassination attempt, what sort of professional relationship, if any, did the Reagan administration have with him? Well, um, that's very interesting that you should ask. Um, you will recall that um, there were proposals that when uh, Solzhenitsyn came and delivered his famous speeches to the AFL-CIO uh, in the mid-1970s, um, that were published in one of his first books that was published here, uh, early books published here. It was called Warning to the West. And I think there were about three of Solzhenitsyn's speeches. Um, it was suggested that President Ford should, um, uh, should uh, receive Solzhenitsyn in the White House. And, uh, but we had to be very uh, careful about not offending the delicate sensitivities of, of Leonid Brezhnev and uh, Henry Kissinger and company decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to do that. So I thought, uh, why don't we try, you know, Solzhenitsyn is still living up in Vermont. Why don't we try to invite him and have him meet with President Reagan? And I sent forth a memorandum with that suggestion. But as it turns out, there were some people on the NSC staff and amongst the people whom I called the White House mice uh, who, um, who thought that it would be a bad time to do it because it would offend the Soviets. And, uh, and so Reagan never met with Solzhenitsyn. And uh, I happened to work uh, a little in, you know, uh, on the side to try to assist Solzhenitsyn with his so-called Russian social fund, where he took the profits of his uh, books that were sold around the world, the Gulag Archipelago, the First Circle, Cancer Ward, the, the One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, et cetera. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and he created a fund in order to help the families of prisoners of conscience who had been thrown into the Gulag. And, uh, and so I, I did a little help to Solzhenitsyn and he ended up, you know, uh, writing me a wonderful letter once upon a time that I still have in my office. But that was about the extent of it. 
Great, thank you. Um, we have another question. Um, can you comment on how Russian disinformation and propaganda is playing out now in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Well, it's huge. Uh, it's an avalanche of this stuff. And uh, they seem to be not as effective in doing this as they were in interfering in our internal affairs uh, during the electoral season. And not just in when it came to the elections, but when it came to uh, accentuating the divisions on hot button issues within our society. People who were in favor of immigration versus those who want to restrict it, you know, every hot button issue that you can imagine. And, uh, and, and the Russians were extremely uh, effective at exploiting these things. But now the Ukrainians have been doing a darn good job themselves. And I think the Russians have been almost been more concerned about influencing their own public at home rather than influencing us. And, and they, they have to keep the public on their side in all of this. And they have succeeded, of course, in shutting down the independent media. They've long since assassinated all sorts of, of independent journalists. And we, in our short-sightedness, have shut down our capacity to communicate effectively with the Russian people. Uh, we stopped the shortwave broadcasts to the, um, uh, over the Voice of America to Russia a number of years ago. Uh, we were, there are the only radio broadcasts that were going in were from a, 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 through a, an, a, a local station in the Moscow metropolitan area, and Putin just shut that down summarily. You can say, well, not too many people listen to shortwave. Well, the people who, who can do it are the same ones who are watching television, who are the older generation who have bought into Putin's lies, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, there are many ways of communicating. It's an extremely cheap in instrument of American power, and yet we do not take advantage of it. And it's it's really it's 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 complete um, malpractice in statecraft. Thank you. We have a, another question from our our former Army senior fellow, uh, General Th Thompson. Um, JT, thank you for joining us. Um, he says, um, was our liberal release of intelligence leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine an effective counter to their strategic deception? Oh, great question. Uh, JT, it's great to hear from you, and uh, thank you for the question. Um, I think that our release of some of that intelligence about, particularly about the uh, pre preparations, the Russian preparations of false flag operations. In other words, <clears throat> creating a provocation that would justify the Russian invasion. In other words, getting people who would uh, look like Ukrainians attacking Russians, Russian speakers and ethnic Russians in Eastern Ukraine in order to, to, to provide uh, quote unquote evidence that, uh, that Ukrainian Nazis were persecuting uh, Russians in Ukraine. Uh, the fact that we released this, I thought was one of the single best thing that the Biden 
uh, uh, foreign policy, national security, and intelligence apparatus has done in all of this. Uh, I'm not sure how much um, sources and methods were, were compromised in all of this, uh, but and, and that's obviously an important judgment call. But I thought it was an excellent move by the administration, uh, and it stands out given what I consider to be have been a number of other very, very weak moves uh, in, 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 in this entire conflagration. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question, um, which is, do you see a common theme in the current Russian theme of NATO encroachment causing the Ukraine situation as compared to other Soviet era deception programs, um, such as the trust program as mentioned? Well, yes, the, the Russians have been actually very successful in promulgating the idea that NATO enlargement and encroachment is really a threat to them. And this is a complete falsehood. Uh, NATO, uh, you know, the, the conclusion of the Cold War and the desire of the countries of Central and Eastern Europe to be part of the West and not under the Russian jackboot again uh, is, is one of the consequences of the conclusion of that Cold War. <clears throat> However, when that NATO enlargement was happening, we left the door open for Russia to become part of NATO, precisely because it wasn't beyond the scope of our imagination to collaborate with Russia as we have on counterterrorism issues and, on, and, and the Russians helped us in, 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 in providing a, uh, access to the Northern route in order to supply military material and logistical material into Afghanistan uh, and so that we wouldn't be fully dependent upon uh, the Khyber Pass and the Pakistanis. Um, and, and, and frankly, because I believe that China is objectively the single greatest threat to Russia and not NATO, uh, we should be collaborating with the Russians in order to contain China. But, uh, the, but Putin and the Siloviki and in, in, in the, 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 the power ministries, the, the, the most powerful officials in the power ministries in, in, in Moscow are so resentful of the loss of superpower status and the defeat of the Soviet Union in the Cold War that they just uh, have a, a, an almost an irrational passion to want to stick it to us. And, 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 but we created the so-called Partnership for Peace arrangement we, we, we left a door open for them to, for Russia to be a, uh, an observer at NATO and a pathway for NATO membership. And they decided to turn the whole thing down. And NATO has been one of the best investments that we could possibly have made. You know, each one of these countries had irredentist ambitions. There were Ukrainians, excuse me, there were, there were you know, uh, Hungarians living in, in, in Romania, there are Poles living in Ukraine. There are Poles living in, in Lithuania. There are people from one country living in other countries, and everybody would like to rewrite the, redraw the borders. But we gave all these countries a deal. Get rid of your irredentist ambitions. Be a good citizen. Forget about redrawing borders. Build yourself a shining city on the hill. Be part of the EU. Be part of the NATO security structure. <laughs> 
and there will be peace. And there has been peace for the last now, you know, 30 years in Europe, except in Yugoslav, in the, in the breakup of the Yugoslav Federation, where uh, unfortunately um, that arrangement did not prevail there until finally things had broken up. And, and Croatia and Montenegro and so, so on and all joined NATO. So uh, the, this is, uh, you know, I think that the Russians have gotten a lot of people uh, in the West to believe that NATO enlargement is a provocation. And it is simply not true. It's simply not true. We are not a threat to Russia and we're very happy to let them build their own shining city on a hill. You want to take one more alumni question? Sure. sure. Um, from Mohammed Shafi Hamdam. Um, how do you see the use of Ramzan Kadyrov, and I'm sorry for my mispronunciation, as a propaganda tool by Putin in the Islamic world? Um, the support of EU and US is essential for Ukraine, but how important is it to inform the Islamic world about Putin's ill intention and how to fight his propaganda? Well, um, I, I, can't, I have to say, I don't know enough about this to be able to give you a completely satisfactory answer. Uh, I think that, um, that Kadyrov has, has, has proved to be um, you know, a, a, a very effective agent of the Kremlin in, uh, in Chechnya and, um, and the you know, one of the problems that, that, that Moscow was facing there was the fact that jihadists were now being attracted there, the way they were being attracted to Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, when, when, when that conflict was going on between uh, the Bosniaks and, and, and the Serbs. And, uh, and I think that, um, so, I, I don't, I haven't been able to follow that dimension of it closely enough to be able to give you, uh, uh, to give you a good answer, except that I think that the, that the Kremlin is extremely sensitive to Islam, radical Islamist uh, radicalization, and, uh, and, and they will do anything they can in order to, uh, uh, to, to try to stem the tide. You know, their, their nationalities policy has regularly involved, and this is going all the way back. And when I say nationalities policy, they're dealing with national minorities in, uh, within the Russian empire and before that within the Soviet empire was, was basically a um, involved compromising with the local national groups. Instead of forcing Russian language on them, as the official language, if there was resistance to that, they would compromise with them and let's say the, the Georgians have Georgian language be an, a, 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 you know, a parallel official language um, to, to Russian. Uh, and they would let a, um, they would let a, uh, uh, you know, a Georgian or a Kazakh uh, or a, you know, or a native Chechen be the top person in charge. Uh, and, but then they would make sure they would have a Russian as the number two guy in the party and then the Soviet system. And I would imagine and, and a similar kind of a position 
uh, within Russian provincial arrangements where there are certain ethnic uh, you know, minorities that are the majority in that province. And so um, uh, I think that this is a, 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 general, uh, a general principle uh, of Moscow's rule. It's, it's, uh, it's a compromise, but then it's also a kind of a divide and conquer rule, which is what they use in order to try to stimulate as much inter-ethnic conflict in these places in order to give them an excuse to be able to uh, bring civil peace to the table. And I, I don't know if that's a good answer for you, but it's the best I could do. All right. Um, thank you so much, um, Dr. Lentovsky, and to everyone who joined us today. Um, if you're interested in attending other upcoming events, uh, making a gift to IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, um, please visit IWP.edu. Um, I should also mention that we do have a lecture on unscrambling Russian propaganda in Ukraine um, by Dr. Marek Hodikevich, will, which will be posted on Friday at noon. And so please feel welcome to, to take a look at that if you're interested in um, delving further into this. Um, thank you again. Have a great evening. <laughs>